This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Some did, some didn't, I guess. <laughs> I like Thanksgiving a lot because it's always on Thursday. You get the next day off. Not everybody does, I realize that, but there's something the same about it to me. And I remember growing up, uh, we always had Thanksgiving in a certain way, and we always had the same flavors, the same foods. I'm sure you guys have certain dishes that you always make. Uh, one of the things in our family that we make is it's called cranberry whip, and it's not like a, just a can of cranberry cranberries that you undo and just plop on a plate. You get some cranberries and you uh, you just, what do you, like you mince them up, you put them in a blender and, and you add a bunch of sugar and then you get some heavy whipping cream and you whip it. Whip it good. And then you put some marshmallows, sorry, I couldn't resist it. Uh, and then you put some mar- marshmallow, a whole bag of marshmallows in there and you let those two things sit overnight in the fridge. You got to let it marinate. And then on the day, on the appointed day, Thanksgiving day, you combine those two things with a can of crushed pineapple and you stir it up. And it's just this delicious little after uh, meal, after turkey thing that we, that we do in our family. I don't know where it came from. All my family was from Iowa. Maybe it came from there. I don't know. But we have those certain flavors that we do every year and we have a thing at Christmas time we call slush and it's oranges and bananas and lemon juice all mixed in it's really good I'll tell you about that uh, later on in the year but so it's these things that kind of keep it the same right because we like tradition we like things to be the same so many times but the reality of our world is that things are not always the same you know when I was growing up we had Thanksgiving a certain way and my grandparents would come over from uh, Winter Haven, Florida, because they had retired there, and it was the same. But then when I got into college, my mom and dad got a divorce, and that meant that it was not going to be the same. And that was hard, because what we had always done, which has only probably been seven or eight years, but to me, what we had always done, we weren't going to do anymore. But I realized that I could still be thankful even for the little things like cranberry whip, even if it wasn't the same. And I know that a lot of times when we think about holidays, one of the things that we're thinking about is time spent with family. And the truth is, if you've lived any length of time, seven or eight years, you realize that things aren't always the same. The way you thought it was going to be, it isn't. And that's just the truth of the matter. Maybe you look back on your life and you say, if I could have only done this or if I could have done that, it would have been different. Or if he or she hadn't done this or that, it would be different. But the reality is, it's the way it is. And so we have to think through, how do I find joy when it's not the same? How do I find meaning and significance in my faith in the Lord when sometimes my family is not so agreeable to be with? Right, you know, we, we see Thanksgiving pictures on Facebook this week or on Instagram, and we're looking at, anticipating everybody 
everybody's Christmas picture. They're getting their Christmas card. But, but you know, no one really tells the truth in the Christmas letter. Right? You know, Johnny was in jail for the last six months. And, you know, Susie got bad grades every year. And she's really difficult to deal with. No, it's just we're putting forth our best self. And we should. Hey, look, make yourself look great, right? We did the, the, can, the camera to, uh, talk a couple weeks ago. Was that last week? It's hard to remember. Uh, about look, how we take our pictures of ourselves. But the truth is we're going to be bombarded with pictures of people's perfect families. And it can make us feel like, wow, my family isn't perfect because I know the whole story. Well, let me just tell you, if we change the way these pews were, and we, instead of having you guys all lined up looking at me, and we had round tables, and we talked about the difficulty that, are, that exists in every single family, you would realize that everybody sitting in this room has a difficult story. They have things that are hard. They have felt sadness in this last year because of their family. They felt a longing, a sense of disappointment. That's part of what it means to have family. So you're among friends if you face difficulty in your family this year because everyone in this room has. And some have had difficulty in their families for a really long time. For a really long time. And it's brought pain and sorrow and struggle and difficulty. And so as we're thinking about the holidays and celebrating with family... We have that all mixed in together. And it's a little bit like Advent, right? Advent is this sense of uh, excitement and anticipation about what's coming as we celebrate the birth of Jesus. But it's also a sense of longing because we realize that, that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. But I want to offer you some encouragement during this Advent season. We're going to talk about family. And we're going to want to look, we're going to look at one of the most jacked up, crazy families that has ever existed. Jesus' family. Maybe you didn't realize this. But Jesus' family, there is unspeakable betrayal. There are unsavory ancestors. There are unfit leaders. And there are unanticipated trials. We're going to look at those this Advent season. And what that brings about, though, even in that difficulty, is undeniable joy. So I want you to be encouraged that you're, if your family's messed up, it's just like Jesus' family, and that's okay. God can work in it and through it. And if you're feeling discouraged or sad because somebody else's picture on Facebook looks better than yours, don't worry about it. They spent too much money putting it together. Let's take a moment. And they paid somebody probably to take that picture. We're going to look at the first uh, six verses of the Gospel of Matthew. because This is a genealogy which tells us the story of Jesus' uh, lineage. So if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, 
and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Uh, thank you for this accounting of your family that teaches us so many things about uh, tradition and the history uh, of our faith. That we uh, don't have a faith that was just revealed to somebody on a mountain, but it's an actual historical uh, story of how you've been working through people throughout generations. And we're thankful, Lord, that within the within the depths of these people's lives, we see uh, the reality of grace that comes through the person and the saving work of Jesus, even in the midst of darkness and difficulty. So as we look around our own families and our own world, we pray that you would help us to take hope and take courage from the life and story of Jesus' family. Let's pray. Amen. Uh, so one of the most important biblical characters is King David. He is described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. And I don't know if you notice this, but in these first six verses, his name appears three times. Now, there's nothing magical about that, but when someone wants to remind the readers or to indicate to the readers there's something is important going on, this is a, an important person, they're going to repeat their name. And so we see that David is listed these uh, three times in the first verses of Matthew's genealogy. A genealogy is basically just a record of the people who were the ancestors of a person to kind of mark their point in history, to, uh, to demonstrate and to establish who they're related to. Now that's a really big deal and an important thing because if we're saying that Jesus is someone important, if his life and ministry and, uh, and what he did in this world is significant, it's got to be connected through the story of God's people all the way back to the beginning. And so what this, uh, this genealogy tells us is that Jesus is related to David. He's related to Abraham. Um, and that God, if you look back in the Bible, God established a covenant with David. A covenant is an agreement that God makes through his word. He makes a promise and he always fulfills his promises. He promised that one day the Messiah would be a descendant of David. He would sit on this eternal throne that God had established. Now David is important because I mentioned he is uh, he's a king, but he's also conquered victorious in battle. He conquered lots and lots of different people. He had a significant influence all throughout Israel and all about the ancient Near East. But not everything was perfect in David's family. We get a clue to the imperfection, and that's putting it nicely, uh, in the text. Did you notice in verse 6, it says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Isn't that strange that in the middle of the genealogy, David's son is listed as someone else's wife? It's a little red 
flag there for us. Oh, what's going on there? Someone else's wife, Uriah's wife, is listed in this genealogy. You may remember this story from 2 Samuel. I'd encourage you to read 2 Samuel chapter 11. It goes like this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David was a king, right? David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. Now, we get a clue right there what's going on. David's a king. When the kings go out to battle, but David's not out to battle, he is in Jerusalem. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and said, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And we know Uriah because he's appeared in the genealogy. This is his wife Bathsheba, the one that David notices. While he's supposed to be out at battle, he's at home noticing someone else's wife. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So, we learn that David, when he's at the peak of his power, when he is one of the most successful kings in all of Israel, who has a relationship with God, and who is connected to God, and is experiencing power and success, when he should have been fighting battles, he was at home. And seeing another man's wife, he saw the woman and told his men, go and get her. And he used his power to take advantage of her, and she got pregnant. It gets worse. If this isn't bad enough, in order to cover up this sin, he invites Bathsheba's husband back from the front, back from the war. And he says, oh, in his mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to give Uriah a leave of absence. So he'll come home from battle and take a break, and he'll be with his wife. And then when everyone sees that she's pregnant, they won't ask any questions because they'll know that he came back from battle. But when he comes back... He's such an honorable man, Uriah. He won't even go into his home because he says, if my men can't have this kind of leave, then I will not have this kind of leave. And he sleeps outside of his own home. So David's plan is in trouble. So he tries another tack in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 11. He says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, who was out on the battle where David should have been. And he sent it by the hand of Uriah. Imagine if you're Uriah going back to the front and you're carrying a letter from the king. And this is what the letter says. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. This is the king. This is Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather. He sends a letter with the man. The man carries the letter back to the front and it says, send him to the front of the battle so that he might die. Essentially, David sexually assaults Uriah's wife and then failing to cover up the resulting pregnancy has her husband murdered. 
think about that. This is Jesus' family. These are God's people. Can it get any worse than this? This is what's going on in the scriptures from the old days. But what about today? What about a worldwide evangelist who's able to argue with anyone on any stage to make the best arguments of anyone, but owns massage parlors in Atlanta in order to abuse women? What about a young man who's put forward as a leader for many years of a famous Christian camp and yet takes advantage of young people? What about the list of pastors who've used their own power to gratify their desires and then sought to use the same power to cover up with no concern about their victims or the damage is done to the name of Jesus and to the reputation of the church? Lust, sexual abuse, even murder are not too much for people who claim the name of God. What about closer to home? Is there someone who has hurt you? Is there someone who's taken advantage of you? Is there someone who's abused their power and betrayed you? Some of you might be surprised to know how many people sit in this room who've been hurt and harmed in this way. People who were trusted but were taken advantage of. There's too many, too many stories, too many wounds inside the church, outside the church, secrets kept within families, stories never told, wounds that have never really healed. These just aren't accounts in the news. They're the realities of our lives and they're deeply painful. And somehow we're asked to move forward even if we never really move on. So there's so many things that we can learn from the story. We could spend days and days talking about it. But I want to lift up a few things. First and foremost, what David did was wrong. David was wrong. He used his power for gain. Bathsheba was not a consenting adult. People often say, oh, this is adultery. It's not. She had no choice but to acquiesce to his power because he was the king. You didn't refuse the king when the king summoned you. She had to respond in the way she did and was forced to participate. David admits this later on in 2 Samuel when the prophet Nathan goes to him. He admits, he says, I sinned against the Lord. And certainly he knows that he has sinned against Bathsheba and against Uriah because he has violated God's law. What he did was wrong. And we learn that there are consequences for these evil actions. Yes, God restores David in a way. His family is irreparably damaged. The child of this illicit relationship dies as an infant. David's sons, his future sons, are divided and they fight for power. They even kill each other. They learn from their dad. How do you relate? David's son Solomon is famously known for his sexual appetites and allows the influence of pagan women to affect how he leads God's people. His descendants walk in the wickedness of their fathers, intermarrying with those who do not walk with God. And yet, in spite of it being wrong, in spite of the significant consequences, there is grace that comes to David's life. Yes, he's violated the law. Yes, there are consequences. And they create ongoing, painful problems for his family. But when David is confronted with his sin, he repents. Instead of continuing to cover up and cover up, he acknowledges what he's done. He confesses. He prays. He weeps over his dead son. Psalm 51. 
to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Listen to these words. Verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Through repentance and restoration, David seeks to honor God and those that he's harmed. Does it take away the consequences? No. But it does show us a picture of grace that we need to see in the midst of sinful behavior. So when I think about this story, I think about the reality that like this is part of Jesus's family. I think about our own lives uh, on a large scale. Often in the last few years, we've seen so many Christian leaders falter and fail and try to cover up sin and, and do what seem to be what are uh, unconscionable acts. It's disappointing. It's discouraging. And you wonder, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why would you allow this to happen? And yet God is working to bring those terrible things to light so that the church could be purified, so that we could acknowledge and say, this is wrong. This shouldn't happen. But on a smaller scale, in our own lives, God wants the truth to come out. God wants us to work through the real pain, to be able to tell those stories. Now, some of the stories are so painful, it's important that if you have experienced a difficult story like that, that you find a person, that you have someone that can walk with you, to guide you, to encourage you, to allow you to tell your story in a safe environment, that you can acknowledge and understand that God's love is working in your life. And maybe it's an opportunity for you to repent. Maybe it's for you an opportunity to say, what I did was wrong. In this sermon, like Nathan confronts David, the Word of God's confronting you to say, what you did was wrong and you need to acknowledge that and make it right. Because you see, when God's uh, law comes to us, like we learned from Romans 7, when the law is revealed, people look to the law and they say, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of grace. And that changes their behavior. We can respond to God's law and return and be restored. And I, I think about this and I realize that, that every single story, every single family has brokenness, whether it's way back or whether it's right now. It brings me confidence and courage and hope to know that if, if this is the story of God's people, well, then can he not work in my own family? Can he not work in the disagreements, sometimes difficulty, the sadness and loss that I experience because things aren't the way I want them to be? but also in the difficulty as I navigate the day-to-day. And I realize that part of the relationships that I have that can be broken and difficult because of my own sin, my own selfishness. God confronts me with that. And He wants me to see that I can be more faithful and kind and loving and patient. I can be more uh, forgiving. And, And when I see the brokenness in God's family, I see, well, you know, God can even work through the brokenness in mine. You know, when we look through the story of the Bible, we realize that all of the characters, almost all of the characters have flaws. They have faults. They have brokenness. 
They've experienced broken relationships. And we know this too because we've experienced broken relationships, right? We've said harsh words. We've had our feelings hurt. There have been times when our expectations weren't met. That's part of life in this world. But the blessing of living life in anticipation of the coming of Jesus, anticipation of the celebration of Jesus' birth, we live in light of the glory of the incarnation. That yes, Jesus entered into that broken world. Jesus entered into that broken family. God could have chosen any family on earth to put the Savior in, but He chose this family. God could have chosen to put you in any family that you were in, but He chose to put you in your family. And the question isn't to say, well, how much hurt have you experienced? It's to say, how, God, are you wanting to work in the broken relationships that I have? Because you see, Jesus entered into this family, but He enters into your family. Because the healing and the the restorative power of the gospel is what brings renewal and hope, even in the light of a difficult season. You know, the thing about friends is if you don't like your friends, you can just get new ones. Just go be a friend to someone else. But your family's not like that. You're stuck with the family that you've got. (laughs) Sorry, guys, they're about four rows from the back. But the good thing about that is that when you're stuck with a family, and I think it should be this way with our friends, and I think this should be this way with our church family too, is that God puts us in friendships and in families and in a church community because He wants us to work through the difficulties of life. It's just too easy if you say, well, well my, all my friends are crazy. I'm going to go get new ones. Mm. I don't have any friends from this age of my life because they're all nuts. But I've got it all figured out and I'm doing great. So I went and got some new ones. And I trade them in every four or five years. No, there's the problem right there. Don't we recognize that? Because God wants us to grow in patience. He wants us to grow in kindness. And He uses relationships in our lives to help us to grow in that way. You know, one of the things that I love about... um, a wedding ceremony is, is one of the lines in the service that says that marriage is used to help us to become more faithfully devoted followers of Jesus. And you know how that God does that? Is that He, when we get married, it's like a, a, a mirror. We realize, well, these are the areas where I'm not what God wants me to be. God does that with parent-child relationships, with brother-sister relationships. In relationships, we see, wow, here's how I'm selfish. Here's how I'm sinful. And what God does is that He says, let me work through that and in that to bring you to a better place. For you to see, yeah, this is a broken area in your life, but I want you to change. I want you to be more like me. I want you to be more kind and loving. Let me, as I often do, I want to just create a little bit of a parenthesis here. Um, There are always going to be difficult relationships, and we have to work through those things. But there's a different category of relationships that are abusive. And sometimes in working through those kinds of relationships, there needs to be separation. There needs to be uh, people, uh, even legal help or professional help to walk through what are abusive relationships. And if you're in an abusive relationship, you need to get help from the outside to navigate that kind of relationship. And in this general sermon, I'm not talking about that. But if you're in an abusive relationship, you need to get help. If you don't know where to go, come and talk with me and I want to help you with that. 
But in just in the general difficult relationships that we experience, Jesus wants us to, to work through these things because we all have brokenness and challenge. And so we see this in Jesus' family. There's brokenness. There's disarray. It may not always be the way you want it to be. But you know what? That's okay. Because if God can work through the brokenness in His family, then He can work through the brokenness in your family. Because number one, what does it do? A couple things. It, it gives you a longing for that eternal family when we go to be in heaven with Jesus. There's this sense when every relationship is going to be full and restored. There's no more hurt or sorrow or pain. And that seems like a long way off. And in many ways it is. But that's going to be a reality for all those who are in covenant with Jesus who go and be with him from eternity. But may that reality give you hope that even in the brokenness of this life, there's a way to move forward. Right? And we look at, uh, what does this mean for you? What is this, uh, what's God saying to you this morning about how it might, He might be working within your family? Maybe it's, it's that you could um, ex- extend forgiveness. Maybe someone has hurt you, and you need to say, Lord, what would you have me to do to forgive? Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe there's something that you've said, or you haven't been as attentive as you've been obligated to be, and you've said, said things that are hurtful. Maybe you need to say, I've hurt you, or I've harmed you, and I'm sorry. What are the things that God is saying to you? Because you see, I think that you know one of the ways that God uh, continues to bless us is by bringing uh, babies into our midst. We've had a lot of babies uh, that have been born into our, our, our church family, uh, moms and dads and grandparents. We can hear some babies in our midst this morning that are singing out praises to the Lord, right? That's right. And when a baby cries, when a baby's born, we just we realize what a thing to celebrate. What a glorious blessing that a new child comes into this world. And so we rejoice and we celebrate, we take pictures and we're all, we're so excited. But we know with that baby come challenges. They come, there's hardship, there's crying, and there's late nights, and there's discipline, and there's all those things. And yet we would never trade it. We would say, yes, this is a gift and it's a blessing, but it's going to be hard. It's a challenge. You see, when this baby was born into the, the world, Jesus, he came into the brokenness. He came into the world. And even though Jesus never sinned, there was brokenness. There was struggle. And his life was one of struggle and difficulty. But he is the promise. He's the promise for the future. But he's also the promise of today. Because when we realize that God brought that baby into this world and into this brokenness, that he's with us right now. He's the one that moves us to forgive, that moves us to work towards repentance, that moves us to act with grace and kindness when we don't feel like it. So I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. This season, as you think about your family, it probably isn't the way you would want it to be. No one in your family is the way you would want them to be. And they're saying, Matt is not the way we want him to be. For every person you're wanting to change, there's at least 10 that want you to change. We're all working together to reconcile, to love, and to serve. So what's God saying to you? I often say, learn one thing and do one thing. What's the one thing that you can do in light of the fact that Jesus has come down into the brokenness of the world? Jesus has come down into the brokenness of your family. What's one thing that you can do to bring restoration and renewal? Just to take a page out of Romans, right? We've been studying Romans all year. And why did Paul send this letter to the church in Rome? Because he wanted to encourage them by faith with the gospel. And they eventually changed the city and the world. 
one relationship, one act of kindness, one forgiveness at a time. What would it look like in your family this year if you were the kind of person that was living out the commands of Jesus in the way of Jesus, even in the midst of a broken family? Just because you have a broken family doesn't mean you're off the hook to live out God's faithfulness. Maybe it's all the more reason for you to do it. So I want to encourage you. You can do it because God will give you the strength. Let's do it to glorify Him this year. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.